Hi and welcome to the 41st episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're talking with Olivia Gamblin of Ethical Intelligence. We talk about what we should and shouldn't automate, the importance of human connection, what is ethics, where value is created in data, the probability intuition of automated cars and the moral gap that that might create, and throwing technology at everything when technology might not be needed. If you like this episode, then please check out more episodes at machine-ethics.net. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, machine underscore ethics. And thanks again to Olivia and hope you enjoy. Hi, Olivia. Uh, Welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks for joining me today. If you could tell us who you are and uh, what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. Um, it's really great to be here. So I am the founder and current CEO of Ethical Intelligence. We're an ethics consultancy focused on helping companies navigate this developing field of AI ethics. Um, I myself come from an AI ethics background, philosophy heavy. Uh, so I'm a philosopher by trade. Uh, great. So um, thanks, um, Olivia. Thanks for coming on. One of the first questions we always ask is to you, what is AI? So I'll give you probably a bit more of a f- philosophical answer. Um, I think my fellow AI programmers would laugh at me, uh, but I view it as a tool. It's a tool that can help us as people actually achieve some very interesting solutions. Um, it can really help us with our innovation, but at the end of the day, it is a tool. So I'd rather say that it's augmented intelligence rather, rather than artificial intelligence. I think um, if we just keep it pigeonholed into being this artificial intelligence that can replace our human intellect, we miss out on a lot of important components that go into what intelligence actually is. And that coming in into play being ethical intelligence, not to quote my company's name, but ethical intelligence, emotional intelligence, those are very important to us as human beings. And that's something that we can help increase and intensify with the use of AI. Yeah. So you're saying that it's it's really something that we can use as a tool to um, make what we do as humans better, easier, faster, all these sorts of good things. Yeah. But it should never, in a sense, it should never take away those parts of us that make us human. It shouldn't take over those parts. That's not what we're trying. That's not, that's not its use. Um, it should never replace the human. It's supposed to help us again. It's a, it's a tool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess we. Uh, it might be quite a difficult question, but kind of leading from that, what is the things that you think make us human, given that there are conversations around um, AI taking away some of those uh, things or having the potential to replace some of the things that humans do? What is it to you that is important that we shouldn't give away or things which are important as human beings to keep as, as things that we do? Yeah, so I think right off the bat, I would say that we should never be using AI to, in a sense, replace our time where we actually get to connect face-to-face, person-to-person. When I say it's a tool, it's a tool that should allow us to spend more time actually person-to-person and having conversations with a person to a person, not a person to a machine. Um, It should help free up time to be able to do that. It shouldn't do that in place, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that kind of, it it creates that emotional connection between people. That's something that truly is human. And I think, um, especially 
given the time, the circumstances now when uh, we're all essentially connecting with each other through Zoom, through Google Hangouts, through all of these different digital mm -hmm. means, we're really starting to notice actually how important it was to sit down in a, in a cafe and, and have a coffee with someone and be, be able to give a high five or give a hug or something, how important that is. I think that's really now starting to highlight um, that that's something we can't replace. Yeah, so our current predicament is almost uh, helpful in highlighting these these kind of basic human needs in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Um, it's been very interesting from my from my perspective watching the different technology that's coming out to help us help us in this time when a lot of people are in quarantine. Um, there's this pandemic. Seeing the technology usage come out to try and, and help alleviate some of that uh, pain that we're feeling with it. But also interesting to see the people's reactions to it, because beforehand it was like, oh, we have this new software that allows me to not have to talk anyone, talk to anyone during my day. And uh, it makes me 20 times more productive. And now being in a situation where it's like, well, we have all of this software coming out that's supposed to make us 20 times more productive and be more attached to our screens because we have so many distractions now and so much time attached to these screens. We don't we don't want that. Um, I'm starting to ramble here now. It's really, it's really starting to highlight the fact of, oh, you know, maybe it's better to put the screen down for a little bit and actually do something um, without technology. Um, I, I concur. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm definitely feeling that um, that way inclined at the moment, uh, being as I spend a lot of my day locked up in my house uh, at my screen and um, feeling the impact of that for for sure, for definite, and having to you know extradite myself from that situation as much mm -hmm. as I can. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in kind of your basic interest. How did you get into being interested in technology, and then by extension, um, the work you do now, and and kind of the impact of technology and um, on society and, and people's lives and, and being concerned with that? Ooh, uh, I will give you the abridged version. <laughs> Otherwise, I could be here all day. Um, I originally come from the Silicon Valley, Redwood City, if you know it, uh, but it's right at the heart. We're right next to um, Palo Alto. So I, I go home to visit my family. I drive by Box headquarters, Facebook headquarters. I, I went to high school right next to Google headquarters. So I grew up in that tech bubble, and it really, really is a bubble. We were kind of all the guinea pigs, in a sense. Um, all of these different tech companies in the Valley would use everyone around them as their, their, their test cases. Um, and because of that, it was very interesting. We, it's kind of this community that, that's very technologically advanced. We have a high technical literacy. Um, and that's why I call it a bubble, because as soon as the, the tech tried to move outside of this little Silicon Valley bubble, it wouldn't really go anywhere because it was almost too beyond advanced or too beyond, too far beyond other people were willing to accept. But because we were always bombarded constantly with all of this technology, we're like, OK, yeah, this is cool. We got uh, robots delivering us our takeout meals, which now is something amazing. But we've had it in the Valley for 10 years or something like that. It, it's it's not new coming out of the valley but before i go too deep into that essentially i started my career out actually in the silicon valley working in tech startups um which was very fun for me uh, because in a tech startup you kind of do everything you have a position but in all honesty you're you're, you're just kind of the body there that floats around and does whatever needs to be done especially if you're 
um, just starting out. And I eventually ended up kind of taking a digital marketing route. Um, but through this, mm -hmm. I saw a lot of the impact, the direct impact that technology has on people around us. Um, and so it established this, of course, fascination with tech, but I also saw the power there that technology had, that people had, um, that kind of influence that you could have over someone depending on the type of technology that you were using, um, which is very fascinating to me. But of course, I decided to be rebellious when I went on to do my undergrad and went in complete opposite direction and ended philosophy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that was a little bit of me going, uh, pushing away, going, I, I, I don't necessarily like being a part of this bubble. I want to do something completely opposite. Ended up studying philosophy and really took to ethics and morality. Um, couldn't quite tell you why. I think it was just that intellectual spark every time in these different philosophy courses, um, trying to understand moral responsibility. I, I like to think it's the way that I'm trying to understand what is life in, a, in the bigger question. Mm -hmm. uh, by studying ethics and morality and understanding how people's actions affect others around them. Um, it's just a way that I'm able to understand the world. And so from that time spent studying philosophy, uh, after that, I actually moved overseas, um, which is now more my home than, than the States is now. Uh, but I moved overseas and I traveled a bit doing uh, different projects with a couple different firms. Um, and these were more based in research, uh, again, in marketing. But I found myself in uh, working for a consultancy firm in Brussels. And this was during the time of GDPR. Mm. So I was a researcher for data privacy, GDPR, uh, cybersecurity, all of those big topics, right, when they were first starting to come into to regulation, as well as become these hot topics. Um, so I was attending uh, these meetings. I was getting lost inside the parliament building constantly, but I was attending these meetings, these conferences, constantly about data privacy and uh, what that means. And over and over again, there kept being this call for, for ethics. People would say, oh, we, we need ethics. And coming from the background in, in ethics, I just like, yes, finally. Uh, this, is, this, is my, this is my jam. <laughs> I, I love ethics. Let's talk. But the conversation never went beyond we need ethics. It was like, okay, what do you mean by ethics? You realize there's mm. all of these frameworks. There's all of these principles. There's, it's such a rich field. What do you mean by we need ethics? And it was... The answer I always got was, oh, it's something management handles. So I never seemed to find the mm. management that handled this. So That's disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I'm still looking for them. <laughs> I'm really curious who this overseeing management is. But uh, essentially what I saw from that is I saw this love of technology that I had grown up with and this fascination with ethics uniting into this one core subject of data ethics and AI ethics. And it was, you know, lack, lack of a better word, the light bulb moment one day during a conference, where I was like, oh my God, I, I have to go study this. I need to go back and study this again. I'm fascinated and I wanna actually start pushing this conversation forward because I'm tired of looking for the non-existent management that's supposed to handle this. Mm -hmm. So uh, through that, I um, ended up going back 
to study my master's degree at the University of Edinburgh. And that's where all of this began. Um, my time at Edinburgh, I co-founded a society which was called the Beneficial AI Society. And it was, it was a social group. And we would bring together people from a computer science background, uh, data scientists, we had programmers, and then we also had philosophers and political theorists, um, social research, we had some lawyers. And it was a really fascinating time. It was just to bring people together to talk about AI applications in society. And it was absolutely fascinating to see these two different perspectives, A, learn how to talk to each other, and B, come to solutions that were a bit more robust than, than we were used to seeing because uh, all of the different angles had been thought out in different directions. Mind you, we were all just a bunch of uh, post-masters, PhDs, uh, drinking in a pub, discussing this. So mm -hmm. I don't know if these were, were, were world solutions, but... Um, you, you make it out so it's it's a lot less formal than you make it out to be. It sounded like a, um, you know, a grand republic forum <laughs> happening. Absolutely. One of my favorite conversations that we had was on the idea of data privacy. And we were talking about um, where is the value created in data? Is it created in the individual's data set? Or is the value created when it's added to a larger data set? And then that data set essentially starts, uh, you can actually start um, pulling out uh, intuitions out of that, that larger data set. And it was fascinating because the computer scientists, everyone from, from more of a hard science background, all argued there's only value when it's added to the larger data set. And the person that's that's pulling out these different intuitions out of that larger data set, that's, that's the person creating the value. Mm. And then you had the opposite side of the room with everyone coming from more of a soft science philosophy um, background saying, no, the value is created in the fact that there, there are data points there already. So the, the, the individual who's created those value, the, those data points, that's where the value is. And this turned into a night-long discussion, which discussion of uh, nothing having to do with AI, but actually a um, modern art piece of a urinal. <laughs> yep, yep. That's a, a Duchamp or... It, it, yep, yep. Yep, that's, it. <laughs> that's where the conversation ended. But the fact that it was so clear, uh, such a clear divide, and then the fact that that clear divide, which you wouldn't think would be that big of a deal, actually had a lot more implications for what it meant to actually have data privacy, what it meant to have control over data. Um, it was fascinating to see both sides to that conversation. And you could tell both sides were going, oh, I did not think someone thought other uh, had a different opinion than I did. Mm. Um, not a formal setting, but eye-opening in its own way. Yeah, I, I'm presuming that you were talking about um, personal data specifically, not just any random set of data. Yes, yes, personal data. Thank you. Great. And and did you did you find that there was a, in that conversation, some sort of um, resolution? Well... I don't think the urinal helped us at all, that kind of <laughs> sidetrack. <laughs> and honestly, the, res the resolution wasn't, this is the answer, this is mm. where the value is at. I think the resolution was people coming from the hard science background going, oh, we there's actually an opinion other than ours. And as again, the philosophers going, oh, there's an opinion other than ours. And both sides are understanding there are people that see value different 
than I do. And that's going to have different implications for data privacy going forward. Um, so not a hard set answer, but I think it was still something to open open their eyes to, okay, there, there's, there are different opinions in this, this matter. Mm-hmm. And it's important to have those considered um, because, for example, if uh, a programmer is creating, a, they think the value is in that larger data set and they're using personal, uh, personalized, uh, personal data, and they go on to create a wider set algorithm that that's harvesting personal data. And they're like, well, it doesn't matter because it was a personal data point of when someone, I don't know, brushes their teeth in the morning, something mm-hmm. very true. Um, and they're like, oh, it's no problem. Like this value, this data had no value anyway, until I put into this larger algorithm, which uh, I don't know, helps dentists or something schedule appointments. I'm making things up right now. <laughs> um, but having them realize, oh, just because I think that there's no value in it doesn't mean there isn't. And actually, if I go and talk to the person that is brushing their teeth, they may have a completely different understanding and think, no, I, I don't want other people to know that that's, that's my personal time when I brush my teeth. And I don't want people to judge me that I don't brush my teeth <laughs> until the evening because I forgot to or something like that. Um, it was just, it, it was very eye opening in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that, um, I'm hoping that the people leaving that sort of situation will have that illuminating thing of being able to see things differently from other people's perspectives and having slightly more empathy for, you know, if you're the developer in the room, then for the, maybe the humanities and some of the soft sciences whereas, and, and vice versa and having that perspective. Yeah, it's vital right now as this emerging technology is emerging. <laughs> yeah have these different perspectives because it's it's touching all of these different lives it's not just who's creating the program it's touching their life no it's 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 touching people beyond borders beyond our own disciplines beyond our own understanding people will never even meet um so it's important to un- to understand that your opinion is not law yeah i mean i'm i'm hoping that people just understand that but you know obviously not um, I'm, I'm afraid I'm being a bit a uh, bit harsh towards um, programmers uh, right now. I sound I sound a bit harsh. I'm afraid. Yes. Uh, so disclaimer: not all programmers think like this, and probably not all social scientists think like this. Maybe no, no, I don't know. Less so. No, no. Yeah. I think, um, one of the biggest challenges um, since well. Uh, my company, Ethical Intelligence, we work with a very interdisciplinary set of experts. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest challenges of curating that that expert network, of curating that knowledge base, has been to find people that don't have an ego. <laughs> that sounds bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think philosophers and programmers are two of the world's biggest egos. Um, and they are determined sometimes and you'll, you'll see this happen where they're determined to use every single piece of jargon they've ever learned and try and stump the other one with how much jargon they can throw at each other and all they're doing is talking past each other and not actually to a solution it's like oh i know more jargon in my field than you do yeah. and that accomplishes nothing so it's difficult to find someone that's like okay i know my own field and i respect that the person that I'm talking to doesn't know my field, so I have to explain it a bit more. But also, it's flipped in the opposite direction. That person also has a huge wealth of knowledge that I I haven't even touched before. Um, and so I need to understand, be humble in the fact that 
I have my knowledge base, but there are things that I don't know, which can be a bit scary to, to mm. admit. Um, so it's not, it's not easy, but it, these kind of conversations, this kind of uh, knowledge base it is what we need in order to come to solutions um, within this emerging technology field. Uh, great. So um, I have a question. Um, this might seem either too simple or too meta. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. But um, we asked what AI was to you earlier. And obviously, your company is is providing kind of ethical um, guidance, frameworks, and um, consultation, leadership, that sort of thing. Is that right? Yes. 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 So what, in that context, what is ethics? This is actually a great question. Um, Oftentimes when I speak at conferences, I start my talk by asking the audience that um, or defining it depending on like if, if depending on the setting. Um, I actually spoke at a conference back in February before uh, conferences were banned. <laughs> and I started with it. Actually, I, I followed a talk. Um, the man that spoke before me was like, oh, we have we have ethics in our technology. It's like, great, okay. Um, and then I get up and I go, can anyone tell me what ethics is? And it was just dead silence. This is a room of like 100, 150 people. No one raised their hand. It was like the the awkward, the teacher asked and no one did the homework situation. Um, but it, it was quite interesting to see that. And I think it highlights the fact that ethics can be a bit of a buzzword nowadays where um, I know that if I say, I have ethical technology, then everyone's like, ooh, yeah, that's good. Mm. Um, but what actually is ethics? And so I usually very, very, very simply define it as the study of right and wrong. And that's like a super meta definition. I know it's much more complex of that than that. That definition itself just kind of clicks into people. Where they're like, oh, okay, I, I can understand right and wrong. And so if that's what ethics is studying, I can kind of understand what this field is supposed to cover. Um, so that is my very meta answer to your very meta question. Great. Um, I love answer these sorts of questions is, is, you know, why I run this podcast, to be honest, mm -hmm. um, to uh, press people against, um, their own understanding and, and experience, but also some people have, uh, like you were saying with the, um, idea of where the value was in data, um, mm -hmm you know, have really different ideas about some of this stuff. So it's really good to make those definitions and, and see where people are, are talking from, where their perspective on things is coming from. Um, so that's where the question. So what kind of um, problems is uh, ethical intelligence trying to solve? What, I mean, if you, if you had your perfect client um, come and uh, give you a phone call, obviously not come into the office to see you at the moment, but um yeah. If they were to appear via email or phone call, what would that client say? Ooh, oh, this is interesting. Um, okay, I have a two-part answer. Mm -hmm. So the first part is the fact that this market, this field as well, they're both very immature. Mm. It's very young. Um, and so even we ourselves at Ethical Intelligence, we're still as well grappling with, okay, what actually is going on behind the scenes? What, where does the help, 
what how does help look like in this situation? Because we're coming in with, with uh, an expertise in terms of the technology and the ethics, but what does that look like actually in a business setting is a completely different world. Um, and so we've already had that, that barrier of academia in a sense, having this wealth of knowledge, but not really being able to communicate that across the bridge to industry. So the first ideal client would be someone from industry coming to us going, we want to learn what this is in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, we understand that there is a need for ethics. We understand that there is that pressure coming from society, from, from our, our consumer market. And we want to know what it is we're actually being asked to, to provide. Um, that would be a first step, a fantastic client, because it shows that they've already done the consideration of, okay, this is something valuable. This is something worth our time. And this is something that we do need to know. It's a new knowledge base that we're expected to know and, and we need to, to gain. Um, so that would be the first one of that kind of educational step. The one after that uh, would be a client that already has the understanding of some of these ethical dilemmas that they're facing. Um, actually, the perfect client would be someone coming who is developing this kind of cutting edge piece of technology and they're stuck in this ethical dilemma of mm. if we create this, then uh, create world peace or everything can go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> like, that's in the extreme, but someone that recognizes this is a huge decision that we have to make and we need to understand all the different aspects that are going into it because depending on which direction we go with our technology, we could either benefit thousands or we could harm thousands. So some, so a client that's come with that uh, very heavily, heavy, heavy laden um, dilemma and the same recognition that this, this dilemma that they're facing is not something that they're gonna fix down the road. It's something that needs to be decided as they're going forward so that they can put their step best foot forward. So that, mm -hmm. that kind of would be, would be our, our, our second, our, our, the one after the education aspect. I know <laughs> the team and I would have a field day with that. It'd be so much fun. Um, that sounds really bad now that I'm saying that of, oh, your, your, your moral dilemmas are, are really fun for us. Please bring us more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess um, what you, what you're hoping to provide is not supposed to be fun per se, but it's like the intellectual challenge of that is yeah. mostly interesting when in this circumstance and when you have something really problematic, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can get to grips with it and, and make um, some sort of um, decision or, or helpful package to to allow that business to move forward. Yeah, exactly. It's it's we essentially get to see um, like a philosophy thought experiment actually being carried out and then using what I what I like to call essentially our training. I mean, it's our it's our research, but our, our training, if, if we're speaking in terms of business um, and putting it to the test, applying it, then it becomes really, really fascinating. Instead of just these, these theoretical thought experiments, it's okay, this, these are light, not life and well, in some cases, maybe life and death decisions that we're meant to help with. Mm. I mean, um, so on that topic, um, I saw that you wrote your um, PhD thesis on automated cars is that something that you were interested in discussing here as well or have you got a strong opinion on um that technology uh, and that use case 
not PhD yet, headed in that direction soon. That was oh, my sorry, last. sorry, that was my fault. Don't, yeah. worry. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Hopefully, actually, PhD direction very soon. Um, but the maths we see this, yeah, I, I, mm. I was looking into. Oh God, okay, I was looking into this intuition that often pops up in terms of self-driving cars specifically. Mm-hmm. And I called it the probability intuition. And it was a pain to write on because it's only really been discussed in academic circles. It's not something that's been written on before. So we, I, my friends ended up joking at one point. They're like, oh yeah, Olivia's off trying to solve the problem that's not actually a problem that doesn't exist and we're not quite sure what's going on with her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially the probability intuition um, is the fact that we're creating these autonomous cars. And as we create them, obviously we have these moral dilemma, response, uh, moral situations where it's like, okay, if the car is driving down the road, does it run over the grandmother or the baby? Um, but the probability intuition tries to look beyond that saying those decisions are important. Yes. But as long as we can get the car to the point where it is so perfect at driving that anytime it crashes or runs over someone is like a freak accident, um, like lightning strikes down in the middle of nowhere mm. and strikes down in front of the car and it, and it runs off the cliff. Like that's just a freak accident and couldn't predict that at all. Um, so essentially get the car so perfect that it isn't, it never meets those situations where it needs to make that kind of like moral decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your reasoning or um, explanation for potentially getting to a system that does that? (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) the funny thing was that was the intuition, but I actually argued against it. Um, What ended up happening was essentially I was concentrating on the moral responsibility aspect. I wasn't per se concentrating on the technological side. Um, I know that self-driving cars are usually based on probability equations and and how they work in their environment. Um, Those are just, there's so many different factors that you really can't calculate in a lab um, that there's a whole assumption that you have to make of, okay, it is possible in the first place to have a car become that perfect at driving. Um, It also comes with a stipulation that all cars are self-driving as Mm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially eliminating the human unknown factor. Yeah. Uh, so I had to act, I had to act on the I had to start with those assumptions. Yeah. I think I think um uh, you can almost make those sorts of situations go away without having to think about the technology itself like you're saying mm-hmm. if humans are taking out the equation somewhat um if the whole network were automated cars and if those roads were fitted with technologically enabling sensors everywhere so that the technology doesn't have to think so hard um, and process so much information and you know the weather conditions weren't that that um, bad so if it only happened in certain countries and all this sort of stuff you're mitigating all these different things away sort of thing you're you're sneaking them under the rug i would say but, yeah. um yeah like but I, yeah like i have a, a magic wand of like oh poof yeah. everything we live in a utopia and everything's perfect yes exactly yeah that would be ideal great yeah but the argument goes essentially though that um 
as as the car gets better and better at driving, the more responsibility decreases as well. Um, there's that more responsibility gap of when a car runs over, when a self-driving car runs over uh, a grandmother, um, there is this more responsibility gap there. We have to blame someone for that death, but it's not clear who we blame. Mm-hmm. So there's a gap that's created um, and this urgency behind the gap because it's laden in, in the sense of like, okay, we need justice to, to be carried out. If someone's not, if someone doesn't take responsibility for the death of that grandmother, then uh, there, it feels like something unfair has happened and injustice has been committed. And so there's mm-hmm. that urgency. Um, but the probability intuition essentially says, well, you know, that doesn't matter. We'll just make the cars so perfect at driving. So as they get better and better, the more responsibility gap will subsequently in parallel decrease as well, up to the point where we don't actually have to solve the problem of who's to blame when someone gets run over by a car. That's the intuition. Yeah. And I, I guess that in that stipulation, the injustice there is a problem, right? People, the human reaction to any of these um, incidents is getting getting in the way of the system actually working at all. Like, um, because yeah. you say you've got this gap and it might be that the public um, find it um, too problematic to implement this thing because the injustice is it feels to us like um, it can't be uh, rectifi- uh, rectified mm-hmm. um, unless we put someone in, in place, like we are going to blame the company or we're going to blame the government or we're going to blame yeah. someone and they are going to be the moral arbiter of that uh, injustice or that um, legal kind of entity that we can then um, deal with. Um, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, if if we took, uh, if we just ignored the human element, then that's obviously not the, not a problem, and uh, we can just get on with it. Um, yeah, but we as humans need that kind of sense of justice carried out. Otherwise, if I mean, we can carry it on until society collapses in on itself. But we as humans need that that justice. We need that blame to feel at well at peace with the death as well. Um, but often, this probability intuition was an intuition that I often ended up in discussions with, which is, this actually relates back to why I wanted to write on this in the first place and and research it further with every time I had a conversation with someone who was coming from a hard science background on, okay, who's to blame? Um, Who should we attach that more responsibility to in the case that that the self-driving car runs over a person? The argument I always had in return was the probability intuition of, well, you know what? Yeah, that's a problem, but it doesn't happen that often. And, we're, we'll get to the point where it doesn't matter at all. So we don't actually have to solve for it. Um, and that always used to not bug me. It, it's like, um, huh. I felt like I kept running into a wall. of like, that doesn't seem like the correct answer though. Why, why is this, why is this intellectually bugging me? I want to dig into this. Why do I, why do I have the intuition in the, in the opposite direction? Um, I want to understand that. Is it me just being frustrated that, um, I don't understand the actual code of, of the technology or is there something more there? And so that's actually what I ended up digging into um, in that research was I was looking at the whether or not that was plausible. If the car, um, if the probability for the car being in an accident decreased, did the more responsibility also decrease? Um, and I actually ended up arguing the exact opposite. So. Um, Essentially, what I ended up concluding was, um, of course, this needs a lot more research done behind it. 
Uh, this was just an initial scratch to the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially what I was looking at is the way that we assign praise and blame to a person. And what we do when we assign blame to someone is when someone commits a crime. So I'm talking person to person now. When a person commits a crime um, and they had a kind of criminal record already behind them, we were used to them always committing crimes. Um, They came from a broken family. They came from a bad home situation. Just all all of those factors that that would contribute into someone um, committing crimes um, in that sense. We would blame that person less. We would look at them and go, okay, you have all of these other reasons for, you have all these causes behind why, why you would have committed that crime. So yes, there's blame, but you're kind of less to blame. You're less in control. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we saw someone with a completely clean record and they had absolutely no reason to commit that crime, um, except for they were bored on a Saturday or something like that, we would look at them and go, no, you have, we, we will blame you more than the other person because you should have known better. You should have done better. Um, we actually, blame exists on this scale. And so when we're looking at that self-driving car, the car, as the cars as they are now, as we're beginning, or even, I don't know, five years ago, the cars as they were five years ago, when it was much more likely for the car to run over someone or, or be in an accident, we were a lot more willing to accept Okay, well, the technology is still in development. It's okay. We won't blame, we won't blame uh, the, the the entity that's supposed to be blamed, whether that's the car, the company, the programmer, da da da. Um, there's less blame here because we were open to the fact that this this was a possibility. Whereas as the car gets better and better and better, and these accidents get less and less, the accidents that do happen, we're going to assign a lot more blame to them because. We're looking at this accident going, the car should have been able, the car should have avoided that. That shouldn't have happened. Like this technology is supposed to be better than that. Why, why isn't it? We're less, we're much less forgiving. And so when you look at it in terms of how blame is, is assigned, um, and blame being attached to that kind of feeling for, for more responsibility, as the car gets better and better at driving, we're actually from well. What my conclusion was, and again, I still still only scratched the surface here, and I need to go through much many more rounds of understanding what exactly this was. Um, but as the car gets better and better at driving, the probability for a crash decreases. The more responsibility out of the crashes that do happen, the blame that comes out actually increases. Um, so completely flipped from mm. what the original argument the, the original theory behind the probability intuition was um yeah, yeah. so no no i think, <laughs> I think I'll, I'll pause there sorry I, I talked a long time there yeah no no it's um it, it's really interesting because it, it seems to me that that is part of the, the you know the, the systems work in in a way that um you hope that the overall net benefit let's say if we're talking kind of like a basic kind of utilitarian point of view net mm-hmm. benefit should be better i mean why are we even going to be bothering right to do this mm-hmm. if it's not better and i guess with your, the assigning of, of blame or, or justice um into this equation that you were talking about 
it has to be considerably better. Um, And I think we've seen that through some of the literature and and how people are uh, reporting this stuff in the media. You know, it, it, it just is so shocking when something happens and, um, we might assign so much more uh, moral, I mean, not appreciation, but some sort of like, like you were saying, the moral gap to these yeah. things gets bigger um, as presumably they get better as a net benefit, which is, a, is an odd thing to kind of look at. So I wonder where the tipping point is where, you know, that injustice, it doesn't get outweighed by the net benefit and, and that becomes acceptable, you know, as a thing. Yeah, yeah. And it possibly could get to that point. We're not sure. I, mm. We haven't witnessed technology at, at that point yet. Um, so I, again, it's all theory and stipulation as we're looking at it. Um, but I think the motivation behind, uh, the motivation I had behind looking at that, that intuition in the first place was to force the conversation actually back onto, okay, understanding where that blame is assigned is very important for the development and actual trust in this technology in the first place it's not something that can be skipped over um it's a hard decision to make it is a hard question look at the growing amount of literature written on it it is not an easy answer but it's one that we do need to put ourselves to understanding Mm-hmm. And I think that um, uh, people can do st- strange and stupid stuff when they get emotional about things as well. So it, it could have a knock-on effect. Um, I made this um, quite silly example in a talk I gave quite a few years ago where you have an automated car and it's being programmed uh, in a way that you know it suddenly transpires that through tests it's knocking over lots of cats and they change something about the program and it's not knocking over cats anymore. But then it has this knock-on effect in the future that it's knocking over. It's, it's you know, causing much more damage in a different sphere. Maybe it's, um, yeah, you know, it's something else. Um, so th- these things um, can can cascade, if you like. Um, so we have to be careful that we don't necessarily um, uh, have these kind of sh- shock uh, responses almost, um, yeah. and and let that color our um, um, our actions. Um, there you go. I got I got the words out <laughs> just about. Um, Olivia, this is um, a question that we usually ask towards the end of the podcast. Um, so, with this technology, with AI and kind of the future of AI and these tools and and things that we're making at the moment, what really excites you uh, and what scares you about these technologies and our future? I am excited by the potential that this kind of technology unlocks for us um, potential to understand our patterns as humans, potential to impact and help each other, um, the potential to reach beyond our normal um, constraints, whether that be constraints within a community, constraints within um, a country and so on. The Technology that one person creates can touch the lives of millions, um, which is very, very exciting. I think mm. leads us to towards development as as human beings. Um, it sounds cliche, but it, it helps us uh, develop as as people. Um, but with that, it's a double edged sword, and I think that leads into the part that scares me: is the fact that we are throwing technology at everything 
And I think there are things that shouldn't be touched by technology. Um, there, there are aspects to being human that just don't need a technological solution. Um, sure, maybe it might speed us up, but is that something that we really want? Um, if we can finish our, our work day in five hours with the use of AI, but then don't have any passion or an outlet or something to do with the rest of the day, is that really going to make us happier? Um, so I think in the flip side, the technology scares me in the sense that we will slowly but surely erode away um, what makes us human. And our, our, our respect for these ethical principles will just slowly chip away at them until the point where it's like, well, we live in a surveillance state because we've chipped away at our understanding of privacy to the point where it doesn't matter anymore. We've chipped away at the principle of trust to the point where um, you can't trust someone unless they have a tracker on them. Like that's the the usage of technology that starts to scare me. Where, um, yeah, where where it starts to ignore the fact that as a person, like I'm starting to ramble again. Mm. Uh, for example, trust. Trust used to be, okay, I see you, I see what you do, and I know you as a person, and I'm going to trust you. Now, trust is taking on a new perspective when it comes to technology because we can't see the people behind the technology we can't see what the technology does and that's that has changed the way that that we learn to trust but for some reason the trust to, to supplement that trust has become i need to know all of your actions like no you need to trust that that i have your best values in mind but we don't technology is, isn't helping us do that it's only helping us understand what exactly you're doing um like it helps me understand every single step you take during the day, but I don't know if that step you took was in my best interest. Um, whereas as humans, we need to look at, okay, how do we encourage each other to have each other's best interests in mind? Um, and technology can help us with that, but it shouldn't come in between. So I get to, to see every, every instance that you do to make sure that you're, you're abiding by this. That's not trust. That's, that's surveillance. Mm -hmm. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, took a, I took a different route there. <laughs> um, so um, let's not do that then, guys. Um, <laughs> um, I guess is the answer there. Um, <laughs> I think um, since I, I, I got on my soapbox, soapbox about mm. trust <laughs> on accident, I'm sorry, I did not mean to go that direction. Um, but trust trust is essential to, I think trust is, is, is a great example of an ethical principle that we need to protect that's something very very human based and we need to protect the way that it that it stands and not let technology slowly creep in on our understanding of what it is to trust one another if that follows mm, mm. yeah yeah i'm just trying to imagine um because i come from a i guess a design technology background so i'm just trying to work out what a technology kind of manifestation of that would be um it's uh it's interesting uh problem and i think there is a i think there's a wide kind of uh trust problem in ai technologies generally uh mm. as well as the internet technologies um a breakdown of trust maybe yeah. um yeah so i wonder what a, a kind of because I, th I think part of the problem is this uh the, the global situation you know we can't trust our 
we don't need to trust our neighbors we need to trust people from all over the world and how do we do that and um how do we do that as biological entities who have evolved in a certain way and um have social norms and uh, cultural norms and law and all sorts of stuff um and how do we do that mediated by technology um i guess i don't have the answer there but um it feels like we've been hashing it out um over the last um three decades you know trying yeah. to work it out yeah I, w- I wish i had a point blank black and white answer for you but ethics is anything but black and white um but that doesn't make it any less worth pursuing i think what we've seen with technology is we've understood now the black and white answers and now we're faced with the hard hard questions and these are the ones that exist in the gray of what does this actually look like how do we understand these points about life that we can't touch i can't physically touch or see human dignity or respect for for my fellow man i can see actions that are caused by that mm. But I can't physically touch it or or see it written out in ones and zeros. Um, it's something that is a bit nerve wracking to try and take on because it's it's it is gray. It doesn't have a solid shape or form, um, but they are still valuable points to life. They're still essential to our understanding of what it means to be human. Um, and technology has opened up the time. In space that allows us to now tackle these 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 great issues mm. that we grappled with for <laughs> even beyond decades, but centuries. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, like the the kind of the e- internet epoch uh, for decades, yeah. let's say. Um, yeah. So that's uh, an excellent place to to finish up, Olivia. Thank you so much um, for joining me on the podcast today. Um, if people want to contact you, follow you, uh, find your work, how can they do that? So you can. Find uh, us, Ethical Intelligence, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Twitter, it's ethicalai um, underscore co. Uh, myself, just Olivia Gamblin on Twitter. You can find me. Um, as well as LinkedIn, I'm very active and I love to chat with other people that are interested in this field, um, slowly bringing together this growing community of brilliant minds of all ages and, and backgrounds that are really starting to tackle these problems um oh and you can also find uh, the website at uh, www.ethicalintelligence.co um that carries most of our work and our current research as well great um thanks so much um olivia have a great day and i'll speak to you soon thank you ben and thank you again for having me and asking difficult questions thank you hi and welcome to the end of the podcast Thanks again to Olivia for spending time with us. I was particularly interested in her thoughts on the probability intuition and the moral gap. I was hoping that I could probe her further on that, but I think it may be a worthwhile conversation for an extended um, chat on our Patreon. So look out for that. Obviously go check out Olivia and Ethical Intelligence. I myself also run ethicalby.design and we come into organisations to do talks, workshops, and produce consultation on AI and AI ethics. Just a quick note that at the moment I'm working with a company called Tiny Giant at tinygiant.io. We're producing a small intro to AI called AI the Edit, 
where we talk about AI, machine learning, ethics, creativity, and marketing. So check that out on the Machine Ethics YouTube and also on Tiny Giants YouTube too. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.